Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Core Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Sestari, and I am really excited about today to continue our journey on bringing awareness to the heat beneath our feet so that we can power the future. And today, we will be having a fascinating interview. We'll be talking with Cindy Taff, who is the COO of Sage Geosystems. She brings a wealth of knowledge from her career in oil and gas with over 30 years spent at Shell, and then now she has made the transition over to geothermal and trying to tackle that problem with Sage Geosystems. And so without any more delay, I would love to introduce you to Cindy and let her give a brief overview and introduction to herself and her career and how she ended up here today with Sage Geosystems. Yeah, thanks, Nick. It's uh, good to be here. So as you said, my name is Cindy Taff, and I have over 35 years of experience in the oil and gas industry. My last role at Shell was VP of Wells over the Shell Global Unconventional Assets, which included assets in North and South America, China, and the Ukraine. I'm currently the COO of Sage Geosystems, which is a small startup company that's located in Houston. Regarding my transition to geothermal, When I left Shell, I saw an opportunity to really apply my experience and expertise from the oil and gas industry. And as I learned more about geothermal, I realized that there's really a huge opportunity that has been overlooked for years. And now just seems to be a really good time to pursue geothermal because there's so much uh, focus and movement toward renewable energies. And of course, you know, geothermal is a lot like oil and gas. We use a well bore drilled into the ground, but instead of accessing fossil fuels as the resource, we're accessing heat. Um, so it's really a natural segue um, for oil and gas companies and for oil and gas professionals like myself. So, you know, to me, this means that our skills, our equipment, they're easily transferable to, to geothermal. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, I have a lot of friends in the oil and gas industry, so I see geothermal as a way of creating thousands of new job opportunities for both the operator and the service sector. So I, that, that attracted me as well. And then why am I excited about geothermal? I, I feel like geothermal is on the technology development spectrum um, where if you just use an analogy like Bluetooth. So back in the 1990s, we used cables to connect our electronic devices. Nobody had thought about using radio waves, whereas now we have Bluetooth and it's used everywhere to connect devices. So that's our vision at Sage for geothermal is really to have it everywhere. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. I think that what I've been touching on just so far in, in the episodes that have I've already had and the interviews I've already touched on with other companies is I think one big thing that I want to bring out and, and tease out for the listeners and just the general audience, whoever it may be, whether it is oil and gas professionals or just people interested in what geothermal is beyond a volcano or, or just some geyser that we talk about um, or Iceland being on the news about a, a volcano erupting um, and thinking it's cool for them. but not not applicable here. Uh, and I think that is that point of geothermal can be accessed anywhere at any time and everywhere. It's just a matter of, you know, technology and getting to a place where obviously we can do it in a cost competitive way. But I like to 
I liken it to the unconventional space. You know, you say Bluetooth. I, I think, you know, 10 years ago, before I was even in my career of oil and gas, nobody thought drilling a, you know, three mile lateral in an unconventional scenario was even a possibility, you know, A, from a technology standpoint, but B, it, no one could do it cost competitively. So I think it's exciting. Now look where we are, where you look at a map and, you know, there's wells, you can't even tell where they end and, and begin. And we do three miles in our sleep almost. Um, and so I think it's, it's exciting from that standpoint. And also, like you mentioned, the crossover is huge and, and will really create some of those problem solving and, and thinking jobs similar to what was required in an oil and gas situation, but in geothermal. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's awesome. Um, and so I think a great segue would be to, you know, for me to just ask and expound more on Sage and, and your business model and, and what really the goal is, um, you know, in comparison to maybe some of the other companies or just if the listeners don't know, there's many different facets of geothermal and how it can be produced. So maybe just touch on, you know, what you guys at Sage are doing versus maybe what is what is also being done out there in other companies. Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, Nick. Um, and, and you've already kind of touched on what are the challenges uh, for geothermal. You know, how do we get more cost competitive? But but the challenges really kind of boil down to the it, the inability to get sufficient heat from rock because it's really a poor thermal conductor, which is a reason why we can walk on the earth without burning our feet, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then once you are able to get the heat from the rock is the surface power plants, they have a really low efficiency of converting the heat into uh, electricity, basically. And then, of course, you know, the high upfront cost of drilling well, a well or wells, and then the high upfront capital cost of the, of the surface or the power plant equipment. So what Sage is trying to do is we're using basically a um, approach that was used or had, is being used in the oil and gas industry for years for complex plays like deep water is we're, we're using what we call an integrated system approach where we're designing or redesigning more efficiently and cost effectively both the surface power plant and the well. So you can't optimize the power plant and not optimize the well and vice versa. So we're, we're taking this integrated system approach and our team consists of people that have worked deep water. They have, we know we have worked unconventionals. And so what you're talking about on the unconventional side, side I'm very familiar with because my team, you know, drilled numerous uh, wells for Shell um, in the unconventional space. Um, the other approach or, or the other um, thing that we're doing that we think is unique is we feel like there's not a single optimum geothermal design solution um, for all applications and subsurface environments. So we look at multiple approaches and multiple technologies to try to address the challenges and then, of course, to optimize the power that we're generating at the lowest cost, because it is a cost game, so to speak. Um, so then if I kind of, kind of take a step back, we 
are targeting lower a lower temperature range, so 100 to 250 degrees C, as you said. We're not drilling around volcanoes or the ring of fire. We want to be able to put geothermal wells anywhere in the world. And, you know, volcanoes and the ring of fire are very geologically limited. So we are targeting a lower temperature range, and then we're targeting sedimentary rock. Um, and, and the reason why we are targeting these areas is because then we can use off-the-shelf and field-proven oil field technology, oil field equipment, and then we can uh, drill and stimulate these wells at a lower cost and with a lower risk of induced seismicity. So um, if, I, if I think about then the technologies that we're working so, for example, uh, on the well side, you know, we're working on a downward oriented frack, which would act like a chimney to increase the amount of heat we harvest from the rock. Um, in fact, you mentioned a field test. We are performing a field test of this technology, which we call heat root, in a abandoned exploratory gas well in Stark County just next month in October of this year. Um, in consideration of other completion technologies, we're also working on things like uh, how do we reduce the friction downhole? How do we create a optimal heating and cooling profile downhole? Because our modeling has shown that both of these things are very critical in the amount of power that we can generate. And, and then if I look at the technology that we're doing for the power plant, we're um, actually working with Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio to design a CO2 turbine for our geothermal applications. We're using CO2 or supercritical CO2 as our working fluid. And the reason why we're redesigning this turbine is to increase the efficiency or the amount of useful work that we can actually extract from the turbine. And so those are, that's kind of that integrated uh, system approach of the well and the power plant. And, and the other tool that we have at our disposal is we've got an in-house modeling tool. Um, it's, it, it's been uh, created by one of the uh, people that work for us. It's based on decades of experience working, modeling subsurface fluids and processes in the drilling of oil and gas wells. But Basically, what you do in this modeling tool, we call it GeoTwin, you input the wellbore configuration, you input the subsurface conditions, um, you input your power plant conversion specs, and then the, the modeling tool will predict the amount of power that can be generated from each combination. So what this allows us to do is narrow down the geothermal system without costly field testing. And so we've already calibrated the tool with um, some of the geothermal data that is available on the market al already or in reports. And so it's, we feel like it's fairly well calibrated. There's a, by the way, there's a ton of DOE data and information on geothermal dating back to the 1970s that we have found to be just very, very valuable. Um, eventually, in our GeoTwin modeling tool, we want to be able to input cost data so that we can actually optimize on a dollar per kilowatt basis or even a levelized cost of energy. So these are some of the things that we're working on. And, you know, again, our vision, if you, if you kind of put together our approach, is that we want to be able, again, to put geothermal just about uh, everywhere across the world. Yeah. Wow. That is 
that's incredible and, and fascinating. And, and honestly, a couple of the questions I was going to even go for, you just covered. So we already took care of the, the, uh, I wanted the efficiency. <laughs> I know it's totally good. It's good for me. I, I just have to, to learn and let the listeners learn. But I think as I began learning more about, uh, geothermal, at least I know personally, um, and I know just for those out there, you know, want to circle back and just, hit those few highlights that you mentioned, which are the efficiencies and then just obviously the amount of heat you can actually get out of a certain well or wells in terms of the reservoir. And so I know that, you know, the low enthalpy resources typically with an organic ranking cycle, you know, you're looking at efficiencies, sometimes even sub 15, sub 20%, most mostly. And then, um, you know, I know in the steam driven turbines, you get a little bit better efficiency. But I was going to talk about the working fluid issue, which I know that many people, and, and it's great to hear that Sage is, is also investigating, um, you know, other fluids that have higher enthalpies or just the, you know, can, which all I'm saying is that they can, you know, absorb, they can conduct more heat and keep that heat for, you know, use at the surface. But um, obviously, designing the plant to take that is a big, is a big piece. So that's awesome to hear about that research that's happening um, within SAGE. Uh, and I know, you know, for, I guess, in in your perspective from what you guys are working on the integrated approach, you know, do you, do you think that by integrating everything into one package, you know, eventually and, and continually learning more and, and, as you said, optimizing the system is really the key, one of the key drivers in making this a global baseload energy source instead of just going around and drilling wells and then, you know, going and trying to attach a surface facility to it or, or try and learn what that resource is. You know, do you think the model of having an integrated system that you can basically just pick up and take anywhere is going to help scale and lower the costs uh, like you mentioned? Absolutely. It, it's very similar, um, Nick, to what you mentioned when you talk about unconventional drilling. So, yeah, we see, you know, the opportunity to uh, optimize both the subsurface and the power plant to be key to driving the cost down. And, you know, right now, geothermal is about double the cost of natural gas, wind and solar. It is baseload energy, which gives it a huge uh, benefit, but it's 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 about double the cost. So we need to get that cost down, and we feel like that integrated system approach will allow us to systematically reduce the cost, just like we did in deep water drilling, where it wasn't it wasn't at one point in time it was not commercial, and same with unconventional. But you, as you work it in an integrated system way, you can drive down both the surface cost and the, and the subsurface cost to get it to a point where you can then compete with um, the other the other energies out there, wind, solar, and, and natural natural gas. So, yes, we definitely feel like um, that is key. And then as far as geothermal anywhere, we feel like the targeting of the low to mid enthalpy, so 100 degrees C to 250 degrees C, and then also sedimentary rock is going to um, – will open up basically the geologic uh, opportunities. And then again, it allow us to use kind of off the shelf uh, already developed um, oil and gas technologies. And which means you don't have to reinvent, you don't have to, you don't have to invent high temp 
you know, drilling tools, downhole tools or uh, new uh, new technologies to, to get out there and actually drill your wells. So we think that's going to be also key to driving the cost down. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, and it's like you mentioned before with there's not a, necessarily a one solution in terms of the wellbore design or, or well configuration. And I know you know, I've, I've already touched on it with, with some of the previous guests and, and, you know, want to touch on it with you just because of the perspectives of, of everyone is, is different and just the knowledge is, is varied. And so, you know, I know, you know, there's the EGS systems, which are enhanced systems basically where we're creating our, our network of perm or just enhancing what's already there and circulating fluid through the rock and picking it up or trying to pick it up through the, the other well, the producer well. And then there's, um, you know, there's the super hot rock, which is still using enhanced systems usually. And then there's the closed loop technology, which I've been seeing more in, in UK and Ireland and, and elsewhere. But, uh, you know, those, those three obviously are very different, um, you know, technologies and offer different pros and cons and their own challenges, you know, with that system. But I guess in your opinion, in terms of leaning on our oil and gas, you know, expertise that's out there and just already the technology that exists, which one of those do you feel like has less of a hurdle or less of a mountain to climb in terms of becoming commercial and scalable to where we can go and do this anywhere in the world that we feel like, um, or anywhere that we want to have geothermal energy from a sedimentary basin? Yeah, you, you mentioned the classical hydrothermal. So it's the high temperature, you know, steam, you know, it's where you see steam coming out from the surface of the earth. So we're not targeting that. That you know that that's uh part of geothermal is uh quite established and but it is ge- geographically or geologically sorry limited. So um you know the EGS, so our heat root technology is a form of EGS. It's just a single well EGS system, right? So we we feel like that is is definitely key to unlocking um basically the hot dry rock right so the exciting thing about hot hot dry rock is it it uh comprises a huge uh percent of the geothermal resources around the world so the the classical hydrothermal is like two percent of the resources and then if you look at the rest of the rock then you you have low temperature hydrothermal right not steam but just lower temperature so Hot dry rock is probably in the, you know, 60, 70, 80% range of the hydrothermal or geothermal resources out there. So if you can, if you can unlock, uh, hot dry rock with an EGS type system, whether it's one well or two wells or multiple wells, then that's huge. Just a huge step into, in, in bringing that ge- geothermal power, uh, in, in an unlimited, um, way right but you not only need the subsurface design so the you know the subsurface uh, one well or two well egs systems but we feel like you also need that that uh, efficient working fluid which we're targeting co2 or supercritical co2 and then you need that more efficient as you mentioned uh, power plants so orc power plants we have seen um, are you know less than 10 percent uh usually less than 10 percent uh efficient and so we're we're um hoping that our CO2 turbine is going to at least double that efficiency. So if you combine, you know, the hot dry rock or EGS system with 
supercritical CO2 as a working fluid, and then your CO2 turbine to increase that uh, harvesting efficiency, then we're hoping that that will help us drive the cost down and then be cost competitive with, with natural gas, uh, wind and solar. And our you mentioned closed loop. Um, so I, I guess it depends on how you look at the system. But um, when we are using supercritical CO2 as a working fluid, it is in a closed loop system. It's it's circulated down hole to pick up the heat, and then it was it circulated back. And actually, it it, it creates a thermal side from where it circulates itself. It, it yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. I, I wanted to touch on that. I wanted. I was hoping you'd bring it up because that to me is so fascinating that it basically does the work for your like it eliminates the need to pump the fluid. Exactly. You you, you would initiate pumping mechanically, but the characteristics of um, the CO2 are such that the, the cold molecules basically drop while the hot molecules are rising and it just creates this thermal siphon where it basically pumps itself. And, and, and actually, that was uh, proven just recently in a green fire uh, yeah. application in, in California. So, you know, and, and as you said, you're saving energy because you're not having to mechanically pump the working fluid. But um, yeah, so our, our CO2 is in this closed loop system. It, it goes down hole and it's a small, it's a small volume of CO2 and it's, it's not exposed to the environment, you know, in, in the atmosphere or down hole, but, uh, and, and it, you just basically circulate the same volume of CO2 through the system, but it is more efficient in harvesting, harvesting that heat and then bringing it through the turbine to create that useful work out of the turbine. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's going to be a huge, real, I mean, a, a massive advancement. And once we were able to unlock that and, and I mean, it's been proven, but just in demonstrating that that is, is something that we can do to increase our efficiency, because, you know, I, I, I want to kind of bring that back, the efficiency relating to just the power generation. I want to bring that back in circle with, the idea of kind of the, you know, with your experience in oil and gas and now being in geothermal, maybe just for the listeners to kind of explain, you know, what what are the differences here when we're viewing this power source and we're obviously comparing with wind and solar and natural gas even, but just on this dollar per kilowatt hour or this LCOE, the levelized cost of energy, you know, what what is different in how we a secure off takers or sell this energy versus what you know maybe some people are more familiar with in the oil and gas space or how it works in that arena versus how it works in in kind of the geothermal space or renewable space yeah we, nick we see uh, for geothermal two uh probably two distinct markets one is um creating a microgrid which would be a dedicated grid for um say, critical infrastructure. So examples of critical infrastructure could be military bases, hospitals, data centers, universities. Um, and they have a keen interest of uh, not necessarily being um, dependent on the utility grid. So when the utility grid goes down, then they're protected from, from going down. So that's one of the key customer uh, bases that we see. The other is, you know, just like wind and solar and natural gas is the uh, utility grid is to be able to generate power 
and then hook up to the utility grid. And I, I did want to explain a little bit about how our geothermal works in the low to mid enthalpy is we are getting, you know, we're, we're estimating we're going to get between three and five megawatt per well, but we are going to use, going back to the unconventional drilling technology, multi-well pads. And so we will drill, you know, 10 to 20 wells per pad, just like we do in unconventional. So proven technology with walking rigs. Um, and then we will have redundant turbines or power plants on these wells. And so if you have one well go, go down, it's not like you uh, or one turbine go down. It's not like you lose all of the power because when we were working with uh, at Southwest Research Institute, they're telling us that there's some benefits in, in basically manifolding the wells together and having a bigger turbine, but not a whole lot of cost benefit in that. So if you imagine, you know, say a 10-well pad with four turbines or four power plants on surface, that means you have redundancy. And, and so that's exciting to us as well because we don't want to have, you know, uh, the inability to, to do maintenance and to take wells offline to do things, you know, to, to do downhole uh, maintenance as well uh, without being able to supply the power that we are, you know, uh, we're trying to supply to our customer. So the redundancy is pretty exciting there as well. But, but yeah, those are our two uh, customer bases that we're looking at is again, microgrids are dedicated um, smaller grids for uh, critical infrastructure and then selling to the, uh, to the utility uh, grid, similar to wind, solar and natural gas. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. And I think I, it's a perfect segue because I want to talk about Sage's recent announcement um, in regards to a military base, Ellington Field. Uh, and I think that idea of microgrid or even just the balancing out the, the regular grid to me is, is I think, a, a big point of emphasis, especially with a baseload source such as geothermal, because we have these examples. We can really just reach back to February in Texas when we had the freeze of the century um, where you know, I think that having some geothermal mixed in even on a, I mean, on a micro grids scenario or even in the, the regular grid could have helped offset some of that just because of, you know, there's no, obviously the lines aren't above ground. And then just because it is, it is a, a base load source to, to help offset when things go down. Um, but I want to bring that back to Sage and talk about your recent announcement with uh, Ellington Field and just kind of just hear from you on, I mean, that's exciting. So just want to hear the announcement and kind of uh, explain what that that's going to look like for, for that contract. Thank, thanks for bringing it up because it's exciting for us as well. We were just uh, uh, told about it last week. But yeah, we um, were working with the Air, Air Force for a feasibility study to install geothermal basically for Ellington Field. So it would be a microgrid, um, again, you know, independent uh, grid for the field for all of Ellington to provide their their power. And, and so what we're going to do in this feasibility study is we're going to look at the geology. We're actually going to do a, a, a seismicity uh, monitoring program. So we'll have a baseline seismicity and then we'll we'll monitor for seismicity throughout the uh, installation of the well and and the uh, you know, if there's any heat root installation or fracturing, we'll be monitor, monitoring it then as well. 
And then we'll choose a drilling location based on the geology. Um, and then we'll also uh, land what the, the power plant design will be. And um, then we'll also land how are we going to most efficiently um, get the power throughout the uh, base because the, the, the base is already using utility grid power. So we'll make sure that we're able to get the power throughout the base. But yeah, it, it, the, the study is for the next 12 months um, and it's basically starts uh, started September 1st, basically. And uh, at the end of the 12 months, what's exciting then is if the study is, is positive and we feel like we can supply this three again a three to five megawatt uh, uh, microgrid for Ellington Field then the next step could be uh, to go ahead and drill a well and install that uh, microgrid. We, we've also been talking to other parts of the military and they're quite interested in, in seeing what we come up with at Ellington and what the results are because they feel like this is a uh, huge benefit for a lot of their permanent military bases. And so they would like to look at, you know, applying it to other military bases besides just Ellington Field. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's great. And it's an awesome announcement for the geothermal community and for SAGE and, and exciting because I think things like this, I think will be key in terms of, we'll call them, I guess, base hits, which I'm stealing from another guest, but just the idea that, you know, one thing that I kind of like to ask everyone that I've had on so far is, you know, we've been seeing and hearing a lot about the new climate reports and just the forecasts on energy demand and replacing that with obviously renewables. But when you look at the forecast, you don't really see geothermal show up. I mean, it's kind of holding flat in the same place that it's been for basically eternity, might as well call it. And there's no real uh, emphasis or you don't see the excitement in those reports that you do when, uh, you know, I'm talking to people such as yourself or just reading, you know, news articles about what's happening in geothermal. And I kind of just want to get your thoughts and opinion on on maybe just what you think, why why we're seeing that from that level that we're, you know, that they just kind of don't believe geothermal has any scalable potential. Nick, we've noticed the same thing. We, uh, We've actually had those conversations within our company. And, and our thoughts are that there's a revolution going on right now in geothermal, and we're early in that revolution. And we feel like once some of these technologies, whether it's a Sage technology or one of the other geothermal companies, because there's a lot of exciting things going on in geothermal right now from you know, from the you know, classical hydrothermal technologies. We, we, we heard on Pivot 2021 about a drill bit that will drill 60 foot an hour in crystalline rock. That's exciting. That's really, you know, usually you get 50 or 60 feet in a day in crystalline yeah, rock, in a, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So that's exciting. And then, you know, there's a lot of us, uh, geothermal companies working on low to mid enthalpy. So that's exciting. So we feel like it's just early in the revolution. And as some of these technologies get proven and um, the cost starts going down, I think people and, and companies and, and industries will start to take notice and start to uh, get on the geothermal bandwagon. And, and that's, that's fine. I think we just need to prove, uh, prove um, and deliver. And I think people will come around and, and I think then geothermal will be presented very prominently in these types of reports and, and um, 
you know, future projections on, on energy and especially on renewable energy, because it's a, it, it's, it's, it's a renewable baseload energy, right? I mean, it's, it's a, a, uh, clean renewable baseload energy, whereas wind and solar, as we know, you know, are, are not baseload. So I, that's what we think. It's early in the revolution. Give us some time as an industry to prove some of these exciting technologies that a lot of smart people are working on. And, and once those are proven, then I think it'll be more prominent. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's just interesting, you know, just the how you see so much emphasis on solar and wind and even from a, you know, both media coverage, but also even just from an investment standpoint, I think, you know, the amount of money that is poured into those versus what's been put into geothermal, both on a research side, but also on just a pure, you know, investment capital. It's kind of, to me, it's just interesting because I understand that we're still working on driving costs down and and we're not to where we want to be, but, you know, in order to get to those, places we need, you know, support and investment and research and all these things. So, you know, I guess from Sage's perspective or even from, you know, your perspective, how do how do we engage, you know, there's a lot of that ESG money out there and even some that's sitting idle wondering what to do or what to invest in, you know, and so how do we get that narrative out there correctly or just get geothermal in front of more of the public in the light that, hey, look, this is a clean, renewable baseload. It doesn't go off and on by the time of day. You can choose to turn it off and on, but that's the beauty is that it is a, it's purely a baseload all the time energy source. Uh, and how do we just attract more of that capital with maybe an understanding that it is a long-term, longer-term investment in some sense than, than what maybe they're typically used to? I, I think a lot of it starts with education. And, and then I also do think, you know, having a success uh, where you're able to demonstrate that you can get uh, close to maybe not, you know, match it or get under the cost of wind and solar is going to be important. I think, um, you know, getting the oil and gas industry in, in, interested because it's such a natural segue for oil and gas companies is, uh, is, is important. And as we talked about before, you know, the skill set, the equipment, they're all so easily transferable, transferable from the oil and gas industry. So, um, you know, people would be a natural match for the, for the geothermal uh, industry. So, um, you know, people realizing that geothermal energy is, you know, emissions free, um, you know, it, it's, I think just the education is going to go a long way to, uh, people realizing that this is a area that we, we need to invest more in. And, and with that being said, I'm amazed at the amount of money that there is out there and the amount of interest from investors that there is out there in geothermal. So I, I think, uh, again, I think we are in this revolution and I think, um, I mean, I know Sage has been uh, approached by many, many investors, and so I think I think it's just now a matter of we've got some money. Let's prove our technologies, and then the money will come. I don't think that's going to really be an issue. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and it's great to hear that. You know, even though we're not maybe seeing it on the front pages all the time, that there is is a heightened interest. I mean, I know even just from attending Pivot, it it's incredible to see the interest that's out there in terms of from all 
the energy community, from oil and gas, from people that are have been in geothermal, from people that are just in the services side that are all extremely excited and interested about the potential of geothermal and just where it can be in the next 10 to 20 years. And I mean, even the next five years, and I know that's what people are, are calling this the geothermal decade. And I, and I like that because I think it puts a little bit of the urgency, like you said, to really get the technologies proven and make sure that we're showing that, hey, these are successful. These can get us to that place where we are cost competitive and we are in the in the talks. You know, when people are talking about PPAs, they're not just looking at wind and solar. They're now investigating geothermal in their area or because they're like, wow, you can drill this pretty much anywhere. So why not do it right here by our school or our city? You know, and I know direct use is is another big piece of geothermal that that I think needs to be capitalized on. But, you know, going back to your point, education, I think is huge. And I'm excited to be doing this podcast because I think, well, for myself, A, you know, selfishly, I'm learning a lot. And in an area that I'm already very interested and excited about, uh, and I hope that it provides a place and a source of just general knowledge to people who are interested in in this space to to realize that we really are, are on the verge of something big and I think huge in the next five to, to 10 year time frame. Yeah, Nick, another area that I, I could and should mention is government subsidies, right? So yeah, wind and solar, they benefit a great deal from tax incentives. The tax incentives for wind and solar are in the range of 25 to 30%. And these tax credits actually can be sold so they can be monetized, right? So in comparison, geothermal tax incentives are around 10%. So, you know, with that being said, I, I will say that the SAGE business model does not rely on tax incentives. Actually, our investors do not want us to rely on tax incentives because the incentives can be revoked at any time. However, um, you know, there are there are benefits that wind and solar ha- have. So, you know, what we want to do is is really just reduce the cost of geothermal so that we can be competitive. And then if if we are able to do that, we feel like geothermal will be the baseload energy of choice going forward. But there are the tax incentives as well. Yeah. No, I think that's a key point. I'm glad you brought it up because we'll just touch briefly on even on a, on a state level here in Texas uh, in terms of what, what Texas is trying to do um, on the the bill that you went and spoke on at the Capitol on Sage's behalf, the, the three five seven six. What you know, I guess for those listening, what was that specifically for Texas? What was that bill trying to to promote? I mean, I'm assuming trying to get geothermal to be included in the picture of energy supply and energy source for our state. Yeah, no, I, just to give you a little bit of background. So yeah, Texas bill, Texas House Bill thirty five seventy six. It was introduced in April of uh, this year to the Energy Resources Committee by House Representative Bobby Guerra. And we were invited to testify on behalf of the bill. And the bill was intended to encourage the production of geothermal energy in Texas by creating a geothermal investment fund that would put matching uh, funds against uh, private companies. And the reason why we were in support of the bill is, you know, first we felt it could propel Texas to be a front runner state in geothermal. It just seems like a natural segue for for Texas since they're a prominent, you know, uh, energy uh, state anyway. 
Um, so it would help us maintain our prominence and in, in energy. And when I say our, because I'm, I'm in Houston, um, uh, it, it would continue to attract people to live and work, to live or work in Texas, right? Because there would be additional jobs. And then it, it would also allow the geothermal industry to repurpose wells and infrastructure where oil and gas may be depleted and need to be abandoned. So we just thought that the bill would be attractive for the state uh, in, in many ways. And so it was not passed, um, but I think it was good that it got the attention that it did back in, a- in April. And uh, I think it put kind of geothermal on people's radar. Yeah, that's great. I, I think that it needs to get on the radar of that level. And I, and I think there's one piece that uh, you said there, which is the repurposing of oil and gas wells uh, and infrastructure. And, and that was one thing I did. I forgot uh, to mention or ask you, but wanted to kind of just briefly touch on is the idea of, you know, I know you're working at Sage on a combined model of becoming more efficient and lowering the cost of having well and plant both there. But, you know, there is the low-hanging fruit of if your model does prove or if, if the geothermal model of you know low enthalpy or just even that range of 100 degrees to 250 works, there are, I don't know a number because it's more than I could probably count, wells that are either sitting there unused or are reaching that point where a company has the abandonment liability sitting over their head and they have to spend money anyway to abandon that well, to plug it and take care of that, or they could take advantage of it and convert it into a, a geothermal well. So again, I think that points back to the idea that oil and gas companies are going to be key in this transition or this advancement of geothermal because they have the people, they have resources, the assets, and then also the wells that are sitting there for, you know, the trial to see if it, if it can work or, you know, and take advantage of existing infrastructure uh, that's already on location. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We one thing we have found, Nick, is that um, in our modeling, mass flow rate is so critical in geothermal heat harvesting. So uh, onshore wells uh, tend to not have tend to not be big enough. And when I say big enough, that the diameter of the pipe is not big enough to get a mass flow rate of what you really want to be uh, economic. Um, However, offshore wells definitely have the size because we all know that offshore wells are a lot bigger. And, you know, but that doesn't mean, you know, what we're looking at the onshore existing wells is we could use them for um, water reinjection. If we uh, if one of our designs is to produce water that heats the CO2 downhole and the CO2, of course, goes through the turbine, but we could use the um, existing oil and gas wells for reinjecting the, uh, the produced water uh, back into the formation to, uh, to basically sustain the, the reservoir pressure over time. And then, yeah, the, the, the infrastructure, you know, uh, can be very valuable. And, and, of course, you know, going back to just the equipment to drill wells and the knowledge and, and you know, it's just a, such a natural segue for the oil and gas industry to get into geothermal. But yeah, re- repurposing wells offshore is quite exciting for us. Um, and then onshore using well, existing wells for other purposes would be what we would be looking at. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I, I'll ask the question on, you know, what, you know, I guess in typical diameter of, of the well you're, you're looking at from a 
you know, mass flow rate perspective, what is what is ideal or what is needed in order to achieve that versus what we typically see in, I mean, conventional vertical wells that even I deal with, we're talking five and a half inch casing, sometimes seven inch, which is probably the biggest that we get at any point. Yeah, so I'll talk about our, our um, test in Star County that we're doing next month. So it's a, it was an exploratory gas well, and it was a dry hole drilled in 2008. And what attracted us to that well is that they didn't run the last ring of pipe, which would have been five and a half or five inch. So it's got 11 and three quarter inch down to about 7,500 feet and then nine and five eighths inch liner um, from 7,500 feet down to about 12,000 feet. And so we actually would like to go even bigger than that. We would like to have 13 and three eighths at a minimum in these wells. But this, this well, you know, existing well, um, it is just providing us a perfect uh, well board to do the test that we want to do because it's bigger pipe. It's, uh, it's not the five or five and a half inch that they would typically run, but 13 three eighths would be the minimum that we would want to put in a new well. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good to know for reference because that is, one point that I know you brought up and in, in that it was about the generating enough heat from, you know, the well obviously is, and you said three to five megawatts per well. And so I guess at a, at a rate, or is there a certain, you know, this may be my dumb question for everyone listening so that we can all learn the rate, you know, is, is it a certain amount of time that, that if, if we're using super critical CO2 and it is operating as a thermosiphon, is there a, you know, in the modeling that you guys are doing at Sage, is there a certain amount of time that that fluid needs to sit at bottom in order to conduct enough heat? And then what is that rate or that mass flow rate that you are needing to achieve to hit your target of energy, enough energy produced to make it worthwhile? Yeah, we're looking at the, the models, the modeling that we, we use. You, you talk about uh, rate in kilograms per second. So we're looking at anywhere from uh, 40 kilograms Per second to about 60. Um, and as far as the resonance time, the, you know, the CO2 has really great characteristics because it uh, becomes super critical at low temperatures and low pressure. So a temperature of about 80 degrees F and a pressure of about 1,080 degrees or 1,100 PSI. And so as long as you can get that CO2 in supercritical state and keep it there, then that's what we're relying on to uh, power the turbine. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's more that kilograms per second that we're looking for to keep the turbine uh, generating the power that we're, we're looking for it to power, uh, generate. Awesome. And then I guess one thing before I kind of do some rapid fire questions for you to, to finish things off, I guess the what are the, you know, some of the expected lifetimes of these projects that you guys are modeling out with, you know, obviously sometimes oil and gas fields, you know, I'm working one that's been around before I was even a thought on the earth and that's pretty typical. And so I guess just for perspective, you know, what is, what is the average or just the expected duration that these can produce energy for us? Yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking the same as most oil and gas wells, uh, Nick, 20 to 30 years. Um, a lot of the, if you're, if you're targeting a water producer though, we, we, uh, there's actually a pleasant bayou, um, low to mid enthalpy geothermal well, hydrothermal type well in Brazoria County in 1989. 
and it produced about two years with little or no decline. So, um, but we're looking 20 to 30 years and, and we're thinking that the water production it, it, in a, what we call a heat flood uh, design, we're thinking the water production can sustain, can sustain many, many years. And it, and yeah, it with wow, dry, that's awesome. you know, hot, dry rock where you're actually, um, you know, not relying on the, the earth to produce and uh, flow water, then it's really infinite. Yeah, because you're we're the ones that would be creating the the fluid or putting the the fluid in this case in the closed loop, but even in a non closed loop, we we're creating our own reservoir, so we're not not depending on the replenishing in the same way that the conventional hydrothermal, such as geysers, you know, which is technically on the well, it's been producing for a long time, but you know, it's running, it's reaching its point of of end of life just because it is relying on that regeneration. Exactly. And and if you think about our working fluid being CO2, you know, we're thinking ahead on, you know, CO2 uh, being sequestered in the ground. Yeah. And as it's sequestered in the ground, it's going to be heated by the earth. And yeah, so there's got to be, there's got to be something there in the future, mm-hmm. right? Is to, you know, use that heated CO2 in our system to again, generate electricity, but keep the, keep the CO2 um, contained in a closed loop. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of yeah, I mean I think that's just the beauty of even what this conversation has showed is that geothermal goes beyond I mean it's just kind of it's a it's amazing and, and fascinating because there are just a lot of arenas which I think it can provide benefits for us in our future from energy to heating and cooling to just even the idea of thermal storage. I've seen some of that being tossed around by people or even using in conjunction with other renewables like solar to basically spike the heat of the water and, and then put it down holes. I mean, there's just kind of infinite realms that people are exploring, a lot of smart people out there. And so I think that that alone is is what I hope to bring out uh, to people is that this is not just, um, yeah, it's not just wind and solar, which are great, they exist, but there's just a, once you dive into this, it's it's way deeper than just a, a energy source that that sounds cool or interesting it actually has massive potential for us i completely agree yeah it's it's uh the, the solar combination with uh, geothermal is very intriguing and, and and it just shows goes to show you it's it's a competitive space but it's also a uh, synergistic space i mean these things can work in conjunction with one another and if you start to uh, marry the benefits of each one then you know man the sky's the limit as far as powering the utility grid yeah. I mean, I think that's the big piece too, is that this is not, you know, I think the one thing that I, I like from the geothermal community and want to also get out there as the narrative is that this is a collaborative space that is not out on a, you know, sort of a vendetta or some kind of we're taking over and, and eliminating fossil fuels or or just trying to basically be our own silo. It's it's truly a, hey, let's just take advantage of what the earth has provided, uh, but also work with everything that exists out there to make it more efficient, make it worth our while, make it cleaner, make it more, just produce more energy. How can we use all of these things at our disposal to best power our future? And and even the idea of using some of these coal plants that are going to be retired soon and, and using the existing infrastructure and grids that are there to drill what, like low enthalpy geothermal resources and just produce it right there. Um, I think there's just a lot. The sky is the limit, truly, I think. Yes. But I want to close it out with just some 
rapid fire, just questions for the audience here, I guess. First one is just, if there's one piece of advice that you could give someone in their early career in terms of energy or even just a a prospective student in an engineering or geoscience uh, space, you know, just uh, one piece of advice on, you know, I get or encouragement of not to give up on the the major or the pursuit um, as there's obviously oil and gas will still be around. And then also just like you mentioned, this this geothermal space, um, what's one piece of advice you could give those those early career and young students? If you're interested in energy, pursue it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. Actually, my daughter is uh, getting a mechanical engineering degree, and she has some of the same questions. And, you know, the, the population is growing and, and uh, countries are developing. Energy is going to be needed. And as you said, there's synergies between all the different energies, whether they're renewable, clean, or, or even, you know, some of the fossil fuels. So, yeah, just go for it because we're, we're going to need energy and the, and the world is going to need an increasing amount of energy. So that's not going to go away. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, just even in my early career here, getting to mentor some students, it's been great to just encourage them to be like, this is not, it's not a dead end and not something you should uh, give up on because it's, it's going to be a, it's going to continue to be a massive space and need. Uh, I think even more now because of what's just happened in the last you know, five to seven years with kind of just the workforce that's been like going on in gas that I think uh, there's going to be an, a, a big need in the next five to 10 years for, for engineering and, and geoscience and just that, that whole realm of workforce. And, and Nick, you and I can both testify it's challenging and it's fun. It's very, it's yeah. a very rewarding career. And um, I, I just think uh, the opportunities will present themselves and you just have to pay attention to, you know, where you think the opportunities are going to be, but we're going to need energy and we're going to need increasing amounts of it. So there's going to be a huge amount of opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. The problem solving aspects and uh, just the critical thinking is, is what makes every day a a new day and and just a challenge that, that you have to really use your head and, and think and solve problems. And that'll, that's not going away. So. Um, I really love that aspect. And then one more, I guess, what, you know, from your career and experience, you know, what would you say is, what are some of your favorite memories or one of the favorite places you got to work or just, you know, what have, what have you taken away from your career in terms of just one of the favorite memories you had in your time at Shell? I, I would say my favorite memories are the people that I have gotten to work with and still get to work with. It's a uh, the oil and gas industry, and I would say just the energy industry in general, is a very dedicated, get it done, get it done safely type of industry. And, um, you know, the challenges put ahead of people, you know, they just dive into those challenges and, and, and meet them head on. And so, it, you know, no challenge goes um unaddressed in the oil and gas industry or in the energy industry. So it's, uh, it's really the people and the tenacity of the people and the, you know, the, uh, they're down to earth and um, they get things done. So that's, that's been my biggest enjoyment. That's awesome. Yeah. Networking is, is, I would say is one of my favorite things as well. Just the people you get to meet every day and work with, and especially even just doing this, getting to meet more people and network is, is just one of the, I think 
I mean, it's just a, a wonderful thing to do for 30 plus years and look back at all the connections you've made. Um, and last one, we'll leave everyone with what is a, a book recommendation that you have um, for, you know, it can be anything. There's no no limit. What is something you'd recommend for everyone to read to pick up tomorrow? Uh, I'm biased, but The 100% Solution. Okay. Um, Solomon, uh, the author, uh, he's our, he's one of our investors. And so, uh, it's, it's about, uh, how do we move from our current, um, environment to, you know, to, to getting, uh, carbon free. It's a really interesting book and he's a really smart guy and has thought about this and very passionate. So that would be my recommendation. Awesome. Well. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Cindy, and and just appreciate all of the wisdom you imparted and just getting to hear more about Sage and and all that you guys are doing and up to and some of the exciting announcements. And I know myself, I'm really excited to see what continues to happen, especially on the the test well coming up. So very excited to follow along with with that. And I hope everyone else is as well. I will be linking... Uh, Sage's info in the show notes as well as Cindy's profile if you want to connect or just hear more about what they're doing. Um, But again, I can't thank you enough for coming on and and really appreciate you taking time to do this today. Hey, Nick, thank you for having me. I appreciate it and enjoyed our conversation today. For all you listeners, thank you again for being a subscriber to this show or downloading this episode. And I hope you're having a great day wherever this found you. And until the next time, we'll talk to you soon.